Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Andrea Norton's The Stars Are Ours, Volume 9, Chapter 8, Desi's Merman. When nothing moved across that circle of light, they dared to retrieve their packs and go out. The carrier had plunged full speed ahead, leaving the curve of the monorail. Under it, both crushed legs pinned to the sand and rock of the valley floor threshed one of the monsters, writhing over the torn remains of the one Santee had shot earlier. Leaping out of the reach of the imprisoned creature's darting head, the Terrans rounded its body and made for the opposite wall of the canyon. Here the rock afforded holds and they pulled themselves up, but the lizard crushed beneath the car appeared to be alone, and nothing menaced their retreat. Panting, they reached the top and dared to look back. Below, the monster still fought insanely against the carrier which held it down. But if there were others of its fellows alive, they had not joined it. Santee wiped his steaming face with the back of his hand. I still don't know how we got out of that one, kid. That was sure a close call. Too close. I want to catch up to the sled before we run into any more of those murdering devils. Yeah. Santee pulled ruefully at the sling of the rifle. Next time I go walking, I'm going to have a lot more ammo. This here country's got too many damn surprises. They set out at a sober pace, too exhausted by their exertions of the past hour to hurry. It was dusk growing into night before they found their way down a rise into another grassy plain. In the distance was a mass shadow of what could only be a wood. Would they have to fight their way through or around that? Dart asked himself drearily. But a light reassured him. There was a campfire down there. Cully had landed the sled this side of the barrier. As Santee and Dard dragged themselves wearily into the circle of firelight, they were met with a flood of questions. Dard was too tired to try to answer. He ate and drank and crawled into his bedroll before all the tale of their adventure of the afternoon had been told. Kimber was very sober when it was complete. That was too close. We'll have to go better armed when we explore. But now that we know there's no civilized threat to our colony, it may be some time before we return this way. Tomorrow the sled will ferry us over the forest and cliffs and we'll be home. Those are our cliffs there. Home. Dard repeated that word in his mind, trying to associate it with the sea valley, with the cave house of the star voyagers. A long, long time ago, home had had a good meaning, before the burning, before the purge. But his memory of that halcyon time was so dim. Then home had met the farm and cold, hunger, the constant threat of danger. Now home would be a cell hollowed out of a colored cliff on a weird world generations of time away from Terra. In the morning, he lazed about the camp with Santee while Cully, after a last tune-up of the limping engine, lifted the sled toward the sea with Kimber as the first passenger. It was an hour before the sled returned and the engineer ordered Dard into the listing craft. They flew slowly, skimming the barrier, and Cully did not take him all the way down the sea valley to the cliff house, but dropped him with his pack at the edge of the ancient fields. Dard swished through the tall grass. 
He could see people moving in the distant fields, more of them than had been about when he had left. More of the sleepers had probably been aroused. Then a clear, lilting whistle announced a boy, some years younger than himself, who came driving before him three calves. He stopped short when he caught sight of the battered explorer and smiled. You're Dark Nordis, aren't you? Say, you must have had yourself a time. Seeing them brewing cities and the lizards and all. I'm going to go out and see too when I can get Dad to let me. I'm Lanny Harmon. Can you wait till I stake out these critters here? I'd like to go back with you. Sure. Dart eased his pack to the ground and watched Lanny tether the calves in the pasture. They sure do like this kind of grass, the farm boy explained as he came back. Hey, let me carry that pack there for you. Mr. Kimber said you had a big fight with some giant lizards. Are they worse than them flying dragons? They sure are, Dart replied with feeling. Say, is everybody awake now? Well, everybody that's going to. A shadow darkened the boy's face for a moment. Six didn't come through, though. Dr. Scort, but you knew about him. Ms. Winston, Ms. Green, Louis Denton, and a couple of men I didn't know, but the rest, they're all right. We were awful lucky. Whoa, look out! Dart overbalanced as he tried to stop in mid-step and landed on the ground beside Lanny, who had squatted down to sweep away the grass and display a dome of mud-plastered leaves and grass. What in the world is that? Lanny chuckled. That there's a hopper house. Dessie, she found one yesterday and showed me where to look. Now watch. He rapped smartly with his knuckles on top of the dome. A second later, a hopper's head popped out of the ground-level door, and the indignant beast let them know very plainly its opinion of such a disturbance of its peace. Dessie, she's got a hopper to stand still and let her pet him. My sister Maria, now, she wants a hopper. Says they're like kittens. But Mama says they steal too much and we ain't going to bring any of them in the cave. I'd like to try to tame one, though. They detoured around a field of the blue pod grain, meaning the harvesters working there. Dart shook hands with strangers, bewildered by all the new faces. As he went on, he asked Lanny, How many are there of us now? Lanny's lips moved as he counted. Twenty-five men, counting ye explorers, and twenty-three women. Then there are the girls, my sisters, Maria and Marty, and Dessie and Larry Scort. They're all little. And Don Winsome, he's just a baby, that's all. Most of the men are down there ripping up the ship. Ripping up the ship? Why did that dismay him so? Sure, we ain't gonna fly no more again. Not enough fuel. And she was made to take the parts so we can use the parts of her from machine shops and things like that. Well, here we are. They came out on what was now a well-defined path, running up to the main entrance of the cave. Three men were working on a swinging platform suspended from the top of the cliff, fitting clear glass into a hole ready to receive it as a window. Daddy! 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 A whirlwind swept down upon him, wrapping thin arms about his waist, burrowing a face against him. He went down on his knees and took Dessie into a big hug. Dottie! She was sniffling a little. They said you would come and I've been watching all the time. Oh, Dottie! She smiled at him blissfully. 
I do like this place, I do. There are lots of animals in the grass, and some of them have houses just like us. And they like me. Now that you come home, Daddy, everything is just wonderful. Truly it is. It sure is, honey. So there you are, son. Trudy Harmon bore down upon him. And I bet you're hungry too, I'll wager. You come right in and rest and eat. Heard tell that you had yourself some exciting times. With Desi holding his hand tightly and Lanny bringing up the rear, still carrying his pack, Dar came into a room where there was a long table flanked by benches. Kimber was already sitting there, empty plates before him, talking to an excited Kordoff. But where did they go, those city dwellers? The little biologist spluttered as Dard waded into the food Trudy Harmon spread before him. They couldn't just vanish, poof! He snapped his fingers, as if they were poofs of smoke. Kimber gave the same answer to that question as Dard had made. Say an epidemic following a war. Germ warfare, radiation sickness, who can tell now? By the weathering of the city, they'd been gone a long time. We found no traces of anything but animal life. And nothing to fear but those lizards. A whole world deserted? Kordoff shook his head. Those others took the wrong turn somewhere. It's up to us to see that we don't follow their example, Kimber cut in. That evening, the voyagers gathered around a giant campfire in the open space before the cliff house, while Kimber and the others in turn recited the saga of their journey into the interior. The city, the robot-controlled battery, the battle with the lizards held their listeners enthralled. But when they had done, the question came again. But where did they go? Kordoff gave the suggested answers, but then added slowly, It would be better if we asked ourselves, now why did they go and be governed by the reply to that? They have left us a deserted land in which to make a new beginning. Though we must not forget that in other continents of this world, some remnants of this race may still exist. Wisdom suggests alertness in the future. Dessie, sitting in Dar's lap, leaned her head back against her uncle's shoulder and whispered, I like hearing about the night monkeys, Daddy. Do you suppose they'll ever come here so I can see one too? Knowing them would be fun. Yes, it would, he whispered back. Maybe someday, when they were sure of the safety beyond the cliffs, all the Terrans could venture out, and he could show Desi the night monkeys, but not until the last of that scale death had been found and exterminated. Since Kimber could not use his arm until the shoulder wound healed, Dard became hands for the pilot, working with Cully on the damaged sled. Seeing that he could and did follow instructions, Cully went back to his own pet project of dismantling the engine of the carrier they had rescued from the sea tube. He intended someday, he insisted, to hunt out that second car from the Lizard Valley and compare the two. Desi stayed near them as they worked. She was Dard's shadow in the waking hours, as she had always been since taking her first uncertain steps. The other children were objects to be watched with sober interest, but as yet she preferred company she knew and since she was perfectly content to sit quietly, absorbed in the antics of the hoppers, insects, and the butterfly birds, they often forgot she was with them. No! Dard was startled into turning by her sudden cry. She was having a tug-of-war with the largest hopper he had ever seen, a grandfather of the clan at least. 
but Dessie's strength was superior, and she wrenched away the prize the animal had just stolen from the blouse Dart had discarded in the heat. He opened your pocket, and he took this out, just like it was his own. What is it? It's pretty. She crooned the word as she fingered the sheets in which colors ran in waving bands. Hey, I'd forgotten all about that. It's a book, or I think it is. Dessie, it belonged to those others. A what? Kemper reached for it. Where did you get that, kid? Dart explained how he had found it in the hidden room of the gun emplacement and of his theory that those others might have used the bands of color as a means of communication. I was going to compare it with those shots you took on the microfilm of that doorway in the city. And then so much else happened, I just forgot about it. Well, you do have a feeling for word patterns. I remember that. Dodd makes pictures out of words, Dessie answered for him. Show him how, Doddy. Under Kimber's interested eyes, Dard sketched out the pattern of a line of verse. The pilot nodded. Patterns were words. That must be how you understood the importance of this. All right. Remember those rolls of some kind of recording tape we found in the first carrier? Rogan believes that they can be read by the help of our machines. You're going down to the ship right now and tell him to get out that equipment. We didn't see any use for it yet, and it's been left down there. But I want to know. Yes, go now. So Dard, with Desi in tow, set off down the river to the seashore, where the remnants of the starship were being dismantled as fast as they could use its materials at the cliffs. The red spider plants were again floating in wide patches on the water, but not cloaking all the river as they had on the day the ship had landed. I haven't been down here yet, Desi confided. Mrs. Harmon says they're bad dragons. Dard was quick to underline that warning. Desi might just try to make friends with one of those things. Yes, Desi, they're all. They are not like the other animals at all. Promise me that if you see one, you'll call me right away. She was apparently impressed by his gravity, for she agreed at once. Yes, Doddy. Mr. Rogan brought me a pretty shell from the sea. Might I just go down and see if I can find another? Stay inside of the ship and don't wander away, he told her, seeing no reason why she shouldn't go hunt for treasures along the water's edge. The ship, which had been so solid and secure against the dangers of outer space, was now but a shell of her former self. In some places, she had been stripped down to the inner framework. Dard squeezed through open partitions to a storeroom where he found the technician checking the markings in a pile of boxes. When he explained his errand, Rogan was enthusiastic. Of course we can try to read those tapes. We'll need this and this and... He pushed aside a larger container to free a third. And this. I'll go to work assembling as soon as we get this back to the cliff. Might be able to try running off one roll tonight or early tomorrow. Want to give me a hand? Dar took one of the boxes under his arm and hooked his fingers in the carrying handles of another before tramping back over the ramp to the sand. Desi came down with me. She wanted some more seashells. I'll have to go round her up. Sure thing. Rogan set down his larger box and came along. They were almost at the shore when the scream sent them into a run. Daddy! Daddy! Quick! Dart's hand went to the ray gun Cully had given him after the adventure with the lizards. It had a full charge in it now. 
but they had seen no trace of the monsters here. There she is, by those rocks. But I didn't need Rogan's directions. Dart had already sighted Desi, her back to some sea-washed rocks, shying stones at one of the flying dragons while she continued to shout for help. To Dart's surprise, she made no move to join her rescuers, but stood her ground valiantly until he used the ray to slice off the head of the dragon and send its body flopping into the sea. Desi, come here, he called, but she shook her head. He saw tears on her cheeks. It's a sea baby, Daddy. The little baby out of the sea, and it's so afraid. We've got to help it. Dart stopped, catching at Rogan to bring him to a halt also. He trusted Desi's instincts. She'd been protecting another creature, not herself, and he had a feeling now that her act was of vast importance to them all. He schooled his voice to a low, even level, as he said. It's all right, Desi. The dragon's dead. Can you get the sea baby to come out now, or shall I come to help you? She smeared her hand across her wet face. I can do it, Dodd. It's so frightened, and it might be more afraid of somebody as big as you. She squatted down before a small opening between two rocks and made soft coaxing sounds. At last, she turned her head. It's coming out, but you've got to stay away. Please. Dard nodded. Desi held out her hand to the hollow between the rocks. He was sure he saw something hesitatingly touch that small palm. Then she wriggled back, still coaxing. What followed her brought a gasp from Dard, even inured as he was now to the surprises this world had to offer. Some twenty slender inches tall, it walked upright, the four tiny digits of one hand confidently hooked about Desi's fingers. In color, the creature was a soft silvery gray, but when a shaft of sunlight touched the fluff of thick fur which completely covered it, rainbow lights twinkled from each hair tip. Its head was round with no vestige of ears, the eyes very large, turning from Desi to the two men. When it caught sight of them, it stopped short and, with a gesture which one dared completely, put the other hand to its wide-fanged mouth and chewed on its fingertips shyly. The small feet were webbed and scaled with rainbow tints, as were the hands. He continued to examine it puzzled. It was akin to the night-howling monkeys, but it was much smaller and plainly amphibian, and it appeared to be able to see perfectly well in the daylight. Where did it come from, Desi? He asked quietly, trying hard not to alarm the engaging little thing. Out of the sea. She waved her free hand at the waves. I was hunting shells, and I found a pretty one. When I went down to wash the sand off, there he was, coming out of the water to watch me. He was sleeked down with water then. He's a lot prettier now. She broke off and stopped to address her companion with a series of trups, such as Dart had heard her use with the wild things of lost Terra. Then, she continued, that bad dragon came and chased him into the rocks, and I called you, like you told me to, Dardy, if I saw a dragon. They are bad. The sea baby was so frightened. Did it tell you that? asked Rogan eagerly. Perhaps it was the vibration of his deeper voice in the air which sent the sea creature crowding against Desi half hiding his face against her. 
Please, Mr. Rogan. She shook her head reprovingly. He's afraid when you talk. No, I don't think he talks like us. I just know what he feels. Here. She touched a forefinger to her head. He wanted to play with me, so he came ashore. He's a nice baby. The nicest I ever, ever knew. Better than a fox or a bunny, or even the big owl. Great space! Look there, off those rocks! Tard's eyes followed the line of Rogan's pointing finger. Two sleek, round heads bobbed out of the water. Great, unblinking orbs were turned to the party on the beach. Dard's grasp on Rogan's arm tightened. Keep quiet. This is important. Desi beamed at their interruption. More sea people. Look, baby. She directed the merchile's attention seaward. Instantly, it slipped its hand free and ran to the edge of the water. But just as it was about to plunge into the waves, it stopped and looked back at Desi. While it teetered there, toes in the lapping waves, the two others of its race swam into the shallows and rose to their feet to wade in. The merchild made up its mind and splashed out to meet the shorter of the two advancing figures and was gathered up into eager arms. The largest of the three, an inch or two above four feet, Dar judged, moved in between its mate and the child and those on shore. Look what it is carrying! Rogan schooled his voice with effort. But Dard needed no one to point out that discovery. The merman was armed with a spear. A spear with a mean-looking, many-barbed head. And about his loins was a belt, supporting a small, fastened case and a long dagger of pointed bone. This was no animal. The merchild struggled to free itself, slipped under the reaching hand of its father, and darted back to Desi. Grabbing again at her hand, it tugged her toward the couple in the water. Dard moved up. He did not like the look of that spear. But before he could get to Desi, the merman thrust that weapon at something, washing among the rocks. When he raised the spear, its point impaled the headless body of the dragon. With a gesture of fury, the merman smashed the battered corpse down on the stone, ripping it off the barbs. Then he splashed up to Desi and caught the merchild, giving it a smart slap across its buttocks with a very human expression of exasperation. Dard chuckled and forgot his momentary fear. The merpeople were unhuman in appearance, but they appeared to share certain emotions with the Terrans. Dard stepped cautiously into the water. The merman was instantly alert, his spear on guard, backing toward his mate and the child he had pushed out to her. Dard held out empty hands in a gesture of goodwill, as old as time. The merman's big eyes searched his. Then slowly the spear was lowered to be laid on wet sand, with webbed toes curled over it to hold it safe, and the rainbow-scaled paws were raised in the right answer. Chapter 9 Treaty and Alliance Winds blast off! Kelly was boring holes in the sand with one finger, restless away from his machines. Dar glanced along the line of the six men who had accompanied him down to the shore. They sat cross-legged in the sand with strict orders to keep quiet and wait. The first meeting between the Terrans and the representatives of the Mer people had been scheduled for this afternoon, 
if he had been able to get the idea across in gestures alone. Spread out on the shore, several feet above the water line, were those gifts the Terrans believed might please the sea dwellers. Some nested plastic bowls made a bright colored spot, a collection of empty bottles of various sizes hastily assembled from laboratory supplies, golden apples, native grain, all there together, objects that could be used under the water had been hard to find. They're coming. Desi had been waiting impatiently by the wave's sweep, and now, heedless of the water curling about her legs, she ran forward, holding out her hands to the merchild who threshed up a fountain of spray in its eagerness to meet her. Hand in hand they pattered to dry land, where the merchild shrank shyly against the little girl when it saw the men. But Desi was smiling and said importantly, Set and Sutu are coming now. Dart hid his surprise. How could Desi so confidently mouth those queer names? And how did she know them at all? From all his questioning, and Kimbers and Kordoffs and Carlees last night, they had only been able to elicit that the sea people thought into her head. They had been forced to accept the concept of telepathy, which could be possible with an undersea race. So, deciding that Desi's interpretation might be needed that day, they had schooled her in her part. Sat and Sutu, if those were the proper designations of the mermen who were born in the next wave, came ashore. They both carried the barbed spears and wore long bone daggers of the belts, which were their only articles of clothing. Without a sound, they seated themselves on the seaside of the gifts, facing Dard, regarding him and the other Terrans with owlish solemnity. Jesse. Dard called, and she came trotting up to him. Do I give the presents now, Doddy? Yes. Try to make them understand that we want to be their friends. She picked out two of the bowls and put an apple and a handful of grain at each and carried them over to set them down before the envoys. The one on Dard's right held out his hand, and Desi, without hesitation, laid hers palm down upon it. For a long moment they made contact, then both mermen relaxed their tense watchfulness. They put their spears behind them, and one ran his hands through the fur of his head and shoulders, where it was fast drying into rainbow-dotted fluff. They want to be our friends, too, Desi reported. Daddy, if you put your hand on theirs, they can talk to you. They don't talk with their mouths at all. This is sat. She indicated the merman whose hand she had touched. Dard got to his feet slowly so as not to alarm the mermen and crossed the strip of shore until he could sit face to face. Then he held out his hand. Damp and cool, the scaled digits and palm of the other lay upon his warmer flesh. And Dard almost broke contact in his surprise and awe, for the other was talking to him. Words and ideas swept into his mind, some concepts so alien he couldn't understand. But bit by bit, he pieced together much of what the other was striving to tell him. Big ones, land dwellers, we have watched you with fear. Fear that you have come to lead us once more into the pens of darkness. Pens of darkness? Dart echoed aloud and then shaped a mental query. Those who once walked the land here... They kept the pens of darkness where our fathers, fathers, fathers. 
the concept of a long stretch of past time trailed through the Terran's receptive mind. We're hashed. The days of fire came, and we broke forth, and now we shall never return. There was a stern warning, an implied threat in that. We know nothing of the pens, and nor do we threaten you, Dard thought slowly. We too have broken out of the pens of darkness, he added with sudden inspiration. It is true that you are not the color or shape of those who made the pens, and you have shown only friendship. Also you killed the flying death which might have slain my cub. I believe that you are good. Will you stay here? Dard pointed inland. We build there. Do you wish the fruits of the river? The fruits of the river? Dard was puzzled until a clear picture of one of the red spider plants formed in his mind. Then he shook his head to reinforce his unspoken denial. We may come and harvest as we have always done, and... There was a shrewd bargaining note in this. Perhaps you will see that the flying death does not attack us, since your slaying powers are greater than ours. We like the dragons no better than you do. Let me speak with the others now. Dard broke contact and reported to the Terran committee. Sure! Santee's jovial boom could not be kept to a whisper, and at the sound, or its vibration, both mermen started. Let them come in and get their spiders. I'll watch for dragons. Fair enough, Kimber agreed. We don't care for the dragons any more than they do. Before the hour had passed, cordial relations had been established, and the mermen promised to return early the next morning with their harvest crew. Carrying the gifts, they waded out into the sea, Sat's cub riding on his father's shoulder. The little one waved back at Desi until all three of them disappeared under the water. Those pens they spoke of, Kordoff mused later that night when they discussed the meeting in an open convocation of all the voyagers. They must have been imprisoned at one time by the city builders and escaped during or after the war. But surely they weren't domestic animals. More likely slaves, suggested Carly Scort. Perhaps they were forced to do undersea work where landsmen could not venture. They're coming back tomorrow? Well, why can't we all go down and meet them? Maybe we can help in their harvesting and prove our goodwill. The clamor which interrupted and supported her was indicative of the enthusiasm of the rest. Desi's people had caught the imagination of everyone, and Dard believed that the Terrans would have gone to meet them in any case. Early as the colonists came down to the river bank the next morning, the mermen were there before them, wading along the shallows of the slowly flowing stream, sweeping between them woven basket nets as fine as sieves to skim up the red fungi. Merchildren paddled in and out, and a line of spear-bearing males patrolled the shoreline with attention for the cliff perches of the dragons. They stopped all these activities as the Terrans came into sight, and when they began again, it was with a certain self-consciousness. Dard and the others who had been on the seashore the day before went up to meet the people, their hands outstretched. A party of the armed males split off to face them. In the center of the group was one portly individual who, 
though there was no way save by the sides for the humans to guess at merman ages, gave the impression of dignity and authority. Dar touched palms with the leading warrior. This is Artak, our friend of many. He will communicate with your giver of law. Giver of law. Kordoff came the nearest to being the leader of the colonists. Dar beckoned to the first scientist. This is their chieftain, sir. He wants to speak to our leader. So, I cannot call myself a leader. Kordoff met the hands of the older merman. But I am honored to speak to him. As Kordoff and the merchief clasped hands, the rest of the colonists came up timidly. But an hour later, merpeople and humans mingled with freedom. And when the Terran party set out food, the mermen brought in their own supplies, flat baskets of fish and aquatic plants, kept in water until time to eat. They accepted the golden apples eagerly, but kept away from the fires where their hosts cooked the fish they offered in return. Although each fire had a ring of amazed spectators standing at a safe distance to gaze at the wonder. Three dragons had dared to invade and were brought down with rays to the savage exultation of the merpeople. They asked to inspect the weapons and return them regretfully when they understood that such arms would not last in their watery world. Though, Cully said thoughtfully when this had been explained, I don't see why they couldn't use some of the metal forged by those others. This seems to resist rust and erosion on land. Might do that in the water, too. Nordis! The urgency in that call brought Dard away from the engineer to the small group of Kimber Kordoff, the Merchief, and several others. Harmon was there as well as Santee and some technicians. Yes, sir. You've seen the lizards. Ask Artak if those are what he is trying to tell us about. We can't get the right impression of what he means, but it seems to be vitally important. Kordoff edged back for the boy to take his place. Dar clasped the readily extended claws of the merchief. Do you wish to tell us about... He shut his eyes in order to concentrate better upon a mental image of the huge reptiles. No. The answer was a decided negative. Those we have seen, yes, hunting down other land dwellers. They were once subordinate to those we speak of now. These. Another picture indeed. A biped, humanoid in outline, but somehow all wrong. Darn had seen nothing like it, and the image was fuzzy, indistinct, as if observed from a distance, or through water. Through water. Now you are thinking right. We do not come out of hiding when those are about. We see them in that fashion. They live on land, then? Not here? Dard demanded, the emotion of fear colored so strongly all the impressions he received by the merchief. They live on land, yes. Near here, no, or we would not be here. We hunt out shores where they do not come. Once they were very, very many, living everywhere. Here, across the sea, they were the builders of those pens where creatures of my kind were imprisoned for them to work their will upon us. Then something happened. There came fire raining down from the sky, and a sickness struck them. They died, some quickly, some much more slowly, when my people burst from the pens. There was a cold and deadly satisfaction in that flash of memory. 
After that, we fled into the wilds of the sea, where they could not find us. Even when I was a new-hashed cub, we lived in the depths. But through the years, our young warriors went out in search of food and for a safer place to live. There are monsters in the deeps as horrible as the lizards of the land, and these parties discovered that those... Again, Dard saw the queer biped, were gone from long stretches of the coast. So we moved hither to live in the shallows among the reefs, as we had always longed to do. There are none of those left in this land now, but... The mer-chief hesitated before suddenly withdrawing his hand from Dard's and turning to his followers as if consulting them. Dard took the opportunity to translate to the others what he had just learned. Survivors of those others? Kimber caught him up. But not here. No, Artok says that his people will not come where they are. Wait, he has more to tell me. For Artok was holding out his hand and Dard met it readily. My people now believe that you are not like those. You do not seem in body quite the same. Your skin is a different color. He drew his claw finger across the back of Dard's hand to emphasize his meaning. And you have received us as one free people greets another. This those others did not do. There is so much hate and bitterness between us from the far past, and they always delight in killing. We have watched you ever since you first came out of the sky. Those others once traveled the sky, though of late we have not seen their bird ships. And so we thought you of the same breed. Now we know that is untrue. But we must tell you, be on your guard. For on the other side of the sea, those others still live, even if their numbers are few. And there is blackness in their minds which leads them to raise spears against all living things. Now, Dard had a strong impression that the merchief was coming to the main point. We are a people who know much about the sea, but little of land. We have learned that you are not native to this world, having fallen from the sky, but did you not also say that you came from a place where you too were penned by enemies? Dard assented, remembering his statement to the first envoys. If you are wise, you will not seek out those who would lay such bonds upon you again, for that is what those others will do. In this world they recognize no other rights or desires than are born of their own wills. We have warriors of our race who keep watch upon them secretly and bring news of their coming and going. Against their might, though they have lost much of their ancient knowledge, we have only our own cunning and knowledge of the sea. And what good is a spear against that which may kill at a distance? But you have mightier weapons, and should we two peoples join skills and hearts against them? But do you now say this to your giver of law and the other elders, so that they may understand? He withdrew his hand again and left Dar to interpret. In alliance? Task Hordoff caught the meaning of that offer. Well, he plucked his lower lip. Better tell him. No, let me. I'll explain that we shall talk it over. But what's this about all those others? Harmon demanded. Did they? 
He indicated the mer people. Say that they're still here? The ones that live in that city? Not here, across the sea. Dard was beginning when Rogan broke in. That chieftain doesn't think much of them, does he? He says they're enemies. They aren't his kind, Harmon pointed out. And his people were their slaves once. We... We, Kimber said slowly, have had some experience with slavery ourselves, haven't we? On Terra, we'd have been in labor camps if we hadn't been lucky. That is, if we weren't shot down in cold blood. I have a pretty good memory of the last few years there. Harmon sifted a palm full of sand from one hand to another. Yeah, I know, only we don't want to get into no local war. That echoed after his voice died away. No entangling alliances to drag them into any war. Dard sensed the electric agreement which ran through them at that thought. Only Kimber, Santee, and maybe Kordoff did not wholly agree with Harmon. Dard gazed down to the riverbank. The Mer people had almost completed the harvest and were gathering up their possessions and slipping in family groups back into the sea. He wondered what Kordoff would tell the chief. Suddenly he could not stand the uncertainty any longer. He wanted to get away to escape from the thought that perhaps it was going to start all over again, the insecurity, the constant guard duty against a hostile force. According to the Mer chief, those others were now across the sea. But would they remain there? Wouldn't this fertile, deserted land where they had once ruled draw them back again? And they would not accept new settlers kindly. If the Terrans only knew more about them, those others had blasted their world. Dart remembered the callous cruelty of that barn in the valley. Raids, looting, the blasted city, the robot-controlled guns to shoot anything passing out over the air, the warnings of the people. He plodded across the sand to the inner valley, heading for the cliff house. Rogan had set up the projector the night before, and they had put the first of the discovered tapes in it. If something about the rulers of this world could be learned from those... This was the time to do it. Where are you off to, kid? Kimber fell into step. The cliffs. Dard was being pushed by the feeling that time was not his to waste, and he must know now. The pilot asked no more questions, but followed Dard into the rock cell where Rogan had installed his machine. The boy checked the preparation made the night before. He turned off the light. The screen on the wall was a glowing square of blue-white, and then the projector began to hum. This one of the rolls from the carrier? But Dar didn't answer, for the screen was now in use. He began to watch. Turn it off! Turn it off! His frenzied fingers found the proper button. They were surrounded by honest light, clean, red-yellow walls. Kimber's face was in his hands. The harshness of his breathing filled the room. Dard, shaken, sick, dared not move. He gripped the edge of the shelf which supported the projector, gripped it so tightly that the flesh under his nails turned dead white. He tried to concentrate upon that phenomenon, not on what he had just seen. What did you just see? He moistened his lips and asked dully. He had to know. Maybe it was only his own reaction, but, but it couldn't be. The very thought that only he had seen that led to panic, to a terror beyond bearing. I don't know. Kimber's answer dragged out of him word by painful word. It wasn't ever meant for man. I kind of mad to see. Dard raised his head, 
made himself stare at that innocuous screen to assure himself that there was nothing there now. It did something to me. Inside, he half whispered. It was meant to, I think, but my lord, what sort of minds, feelings did they have? Not human, totally alien. I don't think we have any common meeting point. I don't think we'll ever have with that. It was just color, twisting, turning color, Dar began. Kimber's hand closed about his wrist with crushing intensity. I was right. Dar did not feel the pain of that grip. They used color as a means of communication, but... Yeah, but what they had to say with it. Not for us. Not for us at all. Just keep your mind off of it, Dodd. Five minutes more like that, and you might not even be human ever again. We can't establish contact with them. Not ever. Minds that could conceive that? No, we can't. So that's what brought you here. You wanted to see if Harmon was right in his neutral policy. Now you know. We have no common ground. We'll have to make the others understand. If we do meet those others, the result will undoubtedly be war. Fifty-three of us? Maybe a whole nation of them left? Tard was still sick and shaken and sensing a deep inner violation. First there had been the tyranny of Pax, which had been man-made and so understandable in all its narrow cruelty because it had been the work of human beings, and now this, which man dared not even touch? Kimber had regained control of himself. There was even a trace of the familiar impish grin on his face as he said, Where the fighting is the toughest, that's when our breed digs in its toes. We needn't borrow trouble. Get Kordoff and Harmon in here. If we're going to discuss the offer of the mermen, we want them to know what to expect from overseas. But to Dard's dismay, the projection of those others' tape aroused in Harmon no more than a vague uneasiness, though it shook Kordoff. And as they insisted on the rest of the men viewing it, they discovered that it varied in its effects upon different individuals. Rogan, sensitive to communications devices, almost fainted after a few moments' strict attention. Santee admitted that he didn't like it, but couldn't say why. But in the end, the weight of the evidence was that they could not hope to deal with those others. I'm still saying, Harmon insisted, that we shouldn't get pulled into anything them sea people have started. You say them pictures make those others regular devils. Well, they're still across the sea. We shouldn't go looking for trouble. Then maybe we won't find none. We're not suggesting an expeditionary force, Tim. Kimber answered mildly. But if they're alive overseas, they may just get the idea to reclaim this land. And you'd want to know about that ahead of time if they did. The mermen will keep us informed. Then we can supply them with better arms. Yeah, and right there you got your trouble. You're going to make sea-going ray guns, and the first thing you know, they're going to use them. They hate those others, don't they? Back on Earth, we picked off a peace man whenever we got the chance, didn't we? Let that happen a couple of times, and those others are going to come looking for where those new guns came from. I ain't saying we ought to turn our backs on the mermen. They seem peaceful. But we're plain foolish if we get mixed up in any war of theirs. I said it before, and I'm going to keep on saying it. All right, Tim, and you're speaking the truth. But this is good land, ain't it? Sure is good land. We're going to have a mighty fine farm here, but farming and fighting don't mix. What about that fellow what lived right over there? 
He didn't live out the last war, did he? Suppose they want this good land back. How are we going to defend it? For the first time, a shadow of doubt appeared in Tim Harmon's eyes. Okay. He flung up a hand in surrender. I'll go with you, halfway. I say be friends with the merman and help him, but I'm not going to vote for no ganging up with him in a private war. That's all we want you to do, Tim. We'll ally with the merman and make plans for defense. Kortoff suit. Dard smiled wryly. Inside he was amused, amused and tired. They had come across the galaxy to escape to freedom, only to live again under the shadow of fear. It was a long way to travel, to come, home. A new frontier to guard. What was that thing Kimber had once quoted while standing on a mountainside in the Terran winter? Frontiers of any type, physical or mental, are but a challenge to our breed. Nothing can stop the questing of men, not even man. If we will it, not only the wonders of space, but the very stars are ours. They had known the wonders of space. The stars were theirs, if they could hold them. But who or what dared to say that they could not? They had broken the bonds of space. Dard savored the new pride growing hotly within him. There was a wide world before them, unlimited in its possibilities. On distant Terra, this ill-assorted group had drawn into tight alliance because they believed alike in what? Freedom. Man's freedom. They had faced the sterility of Pax, clear-eyed, and refused to be bound by it, and trusting their lives to the knowledge Pax had outlawed, and had brought them here. They, if they willed it, worked for United Goal. They could do anything. Dard's eyes were on the painted cliffs, but inwardly he saw beyond, across the wide and waiting land. Alliance with the Mer people, taming of the land, building a new civilization. His breath came faster. Why a lifetime was not going to be enough to do everything that even he could see had to be done. And could their breed be defeated? He gave his answer to the uncertain future with a single word. No. The End This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. We hope that you've enjoyed this Uvula audio presentation of The Stars Are Ours by Andre Norton. The composer of the space theme was Dewey DeLay, and the composition can be found on sounddogs.com. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at uvulaaudio at uvulaaudio.com. You can become a Facebook fan of Uvula Audio. Just do a search for Uvula Audio on Facebook. We are listed on Podcast Alley. Please vote for the adult or kids' bookcasts so that we can get more listeners. We are listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcasts from there for free. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for Uvula Audio mugs, bags, t-shirts, etc. For further Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. If you like our podcast, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the secure PayPal link. All monies will go toward maintaining the podcast in the future. Our next bookcast will be a return to one of our most popular authors, H.P. Lovecraft. Lovecraft's Mountains of Madness always seems to be at the top of the monthly download list of stories. We will be presenting 
in the next couple of weeks, The Mound, an SF horror novelette of some 30,000 words that Lovecraft co-authored with Zelia Bishop. The story is very similar in tone to The Mountains of Madness, involves an ancient Indian burial mound, and takes place in the western U.S. It has never quite gotten the press that a lot of other Lovecraft stories have, and it is a bit on the rare side, but we think that you will enjoy it. From all of us at Uvula Audio, we thank you. <laughs>